I'm back, but we're not going to Mark. We're going to Titus, and we're in chapter 2 today. I will warn you, I am not prone to look at my watch or my Fitbit, whatever you want to call this thing, and that clock has disappeared. So I have no idea, or I will have no idea what time it is and when I should shut up. So, um, <clears throat> and, I'm out, and I'm rusty, so uh, there you go, right on top of it. This is a perfect storm of badness awaiting to take place harmonically. Uh, so uh, please be patient. Uh, next week... Uh, that, the reason the clock might be missing, I'm not sure if it actually is the reason, but uh, it's all going to look different in here, uh, so um, it's all going to paint job. So, All right, Titus 2, and we're picking up in verse 11, and uh, for those of you uh, who maybe didn't notice, this is all one sentence So uh, that Paul writes here. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Almighty, gracious Father, for as much as our whole salvation depends upon our true understanding of your holy word, grant to all of us that our hearts being freed from worldly affairs, may hear and apprehend your holy word with all diligence and faith that we might rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness to your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you remember the last couple of congregational meetings, our annual meetings, uh, you'll notice, uh, you may remember, that I used a metaphor that involved a ship. And I talked about the reality that ministry is sort of, or church life is sort of like a ship. Uh, you get people to come on your ship as passengers, you know, and uh, hopefully this is where the metaphor breaks down because it doesn't normally happen on ships. But hopefully those passengers uh, become crew members and uh, begin to serve the rest of the people who are on the boat. And so as I talked about this, I noted that in the life of our community, we have, I had noticed two weaknesses that were taking place. One, we weren't getting many people on the ship. And two, uh, we were struggling to see people go from passengers to participants in, in ministry. And as, as I thought about this, I realized that they're, they're both related to the same problem, and that problem is discipleship. That, that really what they point to is that we are struggling, whether we want to admit it or not, with discipleship. And so in light of that, I had come across uh, years ago a book called The Trellis and the Vine, uh, but I discovered that there was a new second book that came out called The Vine Project that was designed to help churches implement the principles of the trellis and the vine into their congregation and develop a culture of discipleship within them. 
And so I began to work with uh, a number of you, and we started working through uh, this process uh, that is the Vine Project, and it's time to begin to communicate some of the ideas that we've gotten there. And one of the the main concepts that we're going to find is that there's this cycle that happens uh, between convictions and practice. Uh, Your convictions usually play out into terms of certain practices. And so there's a sense in which practices are convictions made visible. Want to know what you believe? Look at what you do. Okay? And so uh, what we're trying to do is shift our convictions about discipleship so that we begin to shift our practices regarding discipleship so we become increasingly faithful to what we're called to do so that you all grow and become more of what you've been called to become. And so for the next 10 weeks, we're going to look at five convictions. There's going to be two weeks on every conviction. And uh, today is the first week and the first conviction with regard to discipleship. And that question really, or the question that drives uh, this conviction is, why make disciples. And so uh, as we look at this passage in Titus, that's the question we're going to have. We're going to have one question, not three questions uh, this week, but we're going to have six answers. <laughs> you know, we're, gonna wa- we're just going to walk through this text and I'm going to talk about the reasons why, according to Paul, we make disciples. Now, The first part of this chapter, chapter 2, Paul has been discussing the who and the what of discipleship, okay, to his church-planting younger uh, uh, friend, Titus. And we're going to get to the who, we're going to get to the what later on, we're going to go back to uh, Titus 2, 1 through 10 at at a later date, but right now we're focused on 11 to 14, and it's here that Paul shifts to the why. And the reason why I say he's shifting to that is because verse 11 begins with the word for. In other words, he's about to explain why all of the stuff he just said makes sense. For is a logical connector. It's easier if we see therefore, uh, and he could have said that, but usually therefore has to do with the implications. In this case, it's the, the logical connector is about the basis for what he's just said. The reason why to make disciples. For the grace of God has appeared. This is one of those places where when you look at Greek, you go, ah, now I see. The, the verb, therefore, has appeared is, is what we get epiphany from. Okay, the grace of God has epiphanied, so to speak. There's been an advent of grace. The reason for discipleship is, in fact, this advent or this coming of grace. In other words, grace precedes discipleship. People aren't discipled unless they've received grace. In other words, discipleship is not the reason you receive grace, but discipleship comes because you have received grace. Another way of looking at this is that discipleship, rightly understood 
and rightly practiced within a local congregation is meant to be an expression of the grace of God. It is not opposed to grace. It is itself a manifestation of grace, a continuation of grace. But it is not the foundation of grace. Grace is the foundation of discipleship. And it's very important that we get that order correct. And I may come back to that order at various times. This grace, how has it appeared? Well, Paul's going to get to that later, but I'm going to throw out right now uh, from John 1, verse 17, uh, John's gospel reminds us that the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so all of this, this appearing of grace that Paul is referring to, this epiphany of grace, this advent of grace, is the coming of Jesus Christ. And the reason he comes, Paul says, is for bringing salvation to all people. Now, that would very easily be misunderstood. Right? Some translations have offering salvation to all people. Uh, but this can still be misunderstood as some form of universalism that takes place. And I, I want to say kind of two words about that. Okay? And the first is uh, that while in the ESV and other translations, that bringing salvation sounds an awful lot like a verb, doesn't it? Well, it's actually an adjective. But it's hard to translate in, into a recognizable sort of way. Um, but it is an adjective, okay? <clears throat> and it's probably better communicated by this idea of one who embodies or accomplishes salvation. And so uh, this grace has appeared in the one who embodies and accomplishes salvation, which, of course, is Jesus. Now, the all-people part of this refers back to the groups that Paul has just mentioned in the first ten verses of this passage. It refers to the older men and the younger men, the older women and the younger women, the bondservants or slaves. And those are just some of the categories that Paul uses in his writings in similar contexts. For instance, in uh, his letter to Timothy, first letter, second chapter, he talks about kings and those who are in power. There's another kind of person uh, that he needs to speak of. And, and salvation is for all these kinds of people. In fact, in 1 Timothy 2, we see a similar statement. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come, and come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants all people, including kings, or all kinds of people, including kings and those in power, to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So the idea here is not that every single person, but every kind of person... And so all kinds of people find salvation in Jesus Christ. Old men, old women, young men, young women. Is there anyone who doesn't fit in any of those four categories in this room? 
Right. You're the kinds of people <laughs> that Christ came to save. Okay? Uh, but also people in power and people without power. Kings, slaves. Jesus comes for all these people and all the kinds of people who are in between. And so not only is salvation for all these kinds of people, but discipleship is for all these kinds of people. And so whether you're an old man or a young man, discipleship is for you. Uh, Whether you're an older woman, I'm not going to say old, or a younger woman, discipleship is for you. Whether you're a person in power or a person with no power, discipleship is for you. As a manifestation of the grace of God toward you in particular. And so, to answer that question, the first answer we're going to have here is we make disciples because God's grace has arrived in Jesus. If there's no grace in Jesus, there's no reason for discipleship. So, why make disciples? Because of God's grace that has arrived in Jesus Christ. Let's continue past verse 11. He reveals the nature, and the he is Paul, of course. He reveals the nature of this salvation with a series of participles. There's four of them. Training, renouncing, living, and waiting. We're going to look at the first two of those with regard to the second answer to that same question. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And so uh, discipleship is like tutoring. The word that we have there for training, we also get pedagogy as a, as a noun form of it, or uh, pedagogue, uh, our tutor, okay? And so what we have is training, uh, a form of education and discipline that, that takes place uh, so that Skills and knowledge are attained uh, for people. In other words, part of what Paul is saying is that people have to learn how to renounce or deny the drives of ungodliness and worldly desires that they experience. And so whether you're an old man, a young man, older woman, younger woman, person in power, person without power, you experience the, the pressure, the drive of ungodliness as well as worldly passions. And so uh, discipleship is intended to address, and see it's hard to talk about the, the why without talking a little bit about the what of discipleship, but it's, ten, it's intended to partially address uh, the reality of those pressures and drives in a way that teaches you how to renounce or deny or put them to death. The mortification of sin is how John Owen put it. We have to learn how to do this. And what, but what is the this that we're doing? What is, in fact, ungodliness? 
As a young Christian, I sort of struggled with this. What does that actually mean? And what it means is living as if God doesn't exist. Because if God doesn't exist, as Dostoevsky wrote and put the words in the mouth of one of his characters and the brothers Karasmov, um, all things are legitimate. And so ungodliness is living like you can do anything you want to do as long as you want to do it. And who's to say you can't do it? It's autonomy. It's living, you know, as a law unto yourself without boundaries and restrictions placed upon you by other people or by society or culture. It is um, essentially a self-generated ethical system or an internally generated ethical system. And I'll get back to to that in a different week, but I want to sort of explain this in, in this way. I don't know if it's the best way, but nonetheless, we were gone for five weeks. And usually what we do is the Philbrooks watch our dogs. Well, the Philbrooks had something else going on, so uh, what our plan was, was the dogs was gonna, were going to stay home, and the cats were going to stay home, and we had a couple of different neighbors who came in and took care of different animals and made sure they were fed and let outside and all that kind of stuff, and uh, it, it seems all good in theory and everything, and then you come home. And they, 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 these animals now ex- exist and live as if we didn't. We're constantly telling the cats to get off the table or the counters because there was no one to tell them that was wrong. There was no one to take a squirt ball and go, uh, any of that stuff. And so every time I turn around, there's a cat on my counter. And I don't want a cat on my counter because the cat's been in the litter box. Okay? So don't come to my house anytime soon. <laughs> we're going we're to train these cats back to renounce their desires to get on my counter. Okay? But the dogs are no different. I've cleaned up more dog messes in the last week than I did in the previous year or two concerning just my animals, not the animals that we would watch for our friends. It's as if we hadn't existed. They've gone back to being almost feral, it seems. It's not completely that, but it it seems that way at times. And we as human beings can live as if God does not exist that he has nothing to say about how we live and the choices we make and the things that we do. But Paul also says that we're under the power of cravings and longings that are produced by the world. He's... He's only expressing in a different way what he expressed in Ephesians chapter 2, which Rick read for us this morning. They were all under this power uh, to to do the will of the, the prince of the power of the air, really. We're enslaved by our passions. We're enslaved by our desires, uh, which are largely corrupt. And it's, it's easy to see this in the life of an addict, Right? And most of us kind of go, well, we ain't that, so therefore we're not driven by that. And then to which I would say, yes, you actually are. You just have 
a socially acceptable form of addiction, most likely. Let's get a little bit of advice or uh, clarification from the Apostle John, his first letter, chapter 2. Hard words right here. Do not love the world. And right now you're probably wishing he stopped right there. Or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Whoa, wait a minute. (laughs) The love of the Father is not in us if we have a love for the world. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so we experience these these drives to put all of our hopes, put all of our longings, put all of our dreams, put all of our satisfaction in the things of the world, is what John is getting at, and what also Paul is getting at, both in Ephesians 2 and Titus 1. Uh, Sorry, Titus 2. Okay, that's what he's getting at. Paul Tripp puts it this way. Do we value God's grace or would we rather have comfortable lives? Nice houses, cars, vacations, cuisine, and friends. I like good cuisine. I hope I don't live for good cuisine. I'm glad to be back home. I need me some Sonoran food. Okay? Um, But that gets to that question, what are you living for? Are you living for Jesus, as the song goes, or are you living for stuff? Or are you living for status? Or are you living for the size of the um, retirement fund? doesn't say you can't think about those things, but it's, it's more a question of what are you living for? What drives you? What motivates you? Why do you get out of bed in the morning? Worldliness. And so with these two phrases of ungodliness and the worldly uh, passions or desires, we see that people are corrupt within. In other words, they have a sinful nature. They are rebels, to put it another way but they also live in a rebellious world. And so there's uh, con- constantly an interaction between uh, individuals as rebels in this re- rebellious world uh, that feed on one another into this vicious, ugly circle. In other words, we needed salvation, not simply education. I'm not slighting education. People need to learn how to do math and science and things like that. But the limitations of those things are they don't solve the problem of sin and corruption. Education does not solve the problem of racism. Education won't solve the problem of abortion. Education alone will not solve the problem of addiction. Education will not solve the problem of corruption in the powers of Washington or Phoenix or Tucson or Pima County's Board of Supervisors. 
People need salvation from sin within as well as sin without. And that's why Jesus came, to bring the salvation from corruption as well as from the world. And so we make disciples, so they abandon the old way of doing life. It's ingrained in us. It doesn't go away right away. And so there's going to be a lifetime of unlearning what you have learned. We make disciples, so they abandon the old way of doing life. But that training is also connected to something else. Not just the renunciation, but also training us to live. This is the positive side of sanctification. But grace produces both the putting to death of the old ways or the putting off of the old ways and the putting on or bringing to life of the new way. For instance, you all know that my son was born with a cleft palate. He did the best as he could trying to learn how to speak. But of course, didn't have all the parts he needed, and so there's been a lot of surgeries to correct all of these problems, and they, they correct it by degrees because, in part, you can't fix it all when they're infants. There's still stuff that needs to be fixed when they get older, and there's changes in development. And so a lot of what his speech therapy is is unlearning the, the wrong ways of speaking so that he can speak the right way. Okay, But he learned the wrong way precisely because that was the only way this wasn't like he was stubborn. It wasn't like, no, I want to say it this way. It was just he was doing the best that he could with the limited um, capacity he had. But now that he has expanded capacity, he's learning a new way, a right way. And so there has to be a putting off of the old way of speech and a putting on of the new way of speech. There has to be for a Christian the putting off of the old way of life, the old man, and the putting on of the new man. And so what Paul is saying right here is completely consistent with what he says in Ephesians 4 as well as Colossians 3. And, and you've, in order to put on, you first need to take off. You don't want to put nice new clothes on filthy clothes. Right? Uh, you know, you don't go... Cuisine. Let's go back to cuisine for a second. I so want to go to that Brazilian steakhouse. I've never been to a Brazilian steakhouse. And I love meat. I am a carnivore. And it's, it's kind of fancy, at least I imagine from the price tag that it would cost for Amy and I to go there. And so, uh, you know, I'd want to dress up. So I, I wouldn't want to come in from working in our backyard. Um, let's imagine I had been working on the irrigation. <laughs> Thankfully, I have a break because we replaced the irrigation. I'm so thankful for the stimulus check. Um, that's what we did with ours. <laughs> But imagine I came in all filled, covered in mud and, uh, you know, my raggedy clothes that I use when I go out there. And instead of going upstairs and taking a shower, you know, taking off my clothes, taking a shower, putting on new fresh clothes, I just put on my nice pairs of pants and a nice shirt over all the muddy stuff. That makes no sense. You got to take off so that you can put on. And that's what he's getting at. 
with all of this. Now, just as there were two phrases that, that explained the taking off, uh, so there are three demonstrative pronouns in this case uh, that explain the putting on. Self-controlled, upright, godly. And it would be easy for us to, to, to just kind of breeze over this without recognizing what's going on here. Uh, but this is tied into the relational wisdom that our community groups have been talking about for the last two years. Uh, because the self-controlled talks about self. It's your relationship with yourself. The upright is about your relationship with other people. So that you are aware and engaging them properly. And godly means that you're aware of God and are engaging God properly. And so, relational wisdom matters here. It's reflected here. Paul wouldn't use that word, okay? But that's really what's kind of going on here. Self-control. is the first of these things that Jesus restores by his grace. Self-control or being temperate or living soberly, and that doesn't just mean um, you don't touch alcohol, but you're not influenced by the wrong things, uh, is to live mindfully, is to live purposefully, and that is because you can do this because Jesus has not only pardoned you, but is in the process of purifying you by his grace. And so Jesus is at work in discipleship to restore a right relationship with yourself. Jesus is also at work uh, through discipleship to help you restore a right relationship with other people, meaning he's going to make you upright so that you you begin to treat others according to the law, not you know, the law of the county or the city or the, you know, federal law, but the law of God. Okay? You're going to begin to act justly, as it says in Micah 8.6. You're going to act justly in your economics. You're going to pay the people you owe, whether it's because they did a job for you or because you borrowed money from them, or whichever it is. But you you give people what you owe them. It's also, you're going to be just in your relationships. You give respect to people to whom you should give respect. And that is essentially everybody, because they're all made in the image of God. But some people, by their office, also require some additional respect. And we should do that as well. Doesn't mean you can't say, boy, that didn't seem like the best decision in the universe, um, as we're filled with lots of those bad decisions, I think, uh, right now. But they're, they're still in office. They still are due respect, not trashed. Jesus also restores, and this is the fundamental one, uh, this relationship with God so that we become godly or living as if God exists and that we love him as a result of receiving saving grace. We've been loved. 
And that means we love in return. And we're mindful. I mean, what would it be like if I lived like I wasn't married to Amy? Do you think she'd put up with that very long? (laughs) My wife is not a weak woman. I'd hear about it pretty quickly (laughs) if I was starting to live as if I wasn't married and married to her. Okay? We're in this relationship with God. We're united to Christ by grace, and it, it changes how we live. There's a mindfulness of this reality that ought to be taking place. Let's think about this for a second, though, in this process of discipleship. I've got to make sure I don't move too far. I can see myself up there. Um, imagine your car. And this car has mechanical issues. It's got body issues. And it's got electrical issues. It's hit the trifecta, right? The three layers. God, self, others. Catch that? Helping you, those who, who didn't. All those three need to be fixed. But here's what God does. God doesn't bring you to the shop. God fixes it as you go. I mean, what we would do is we would bring our car, our car to the shop, and we'd get all that fixed. Okay, we'd, go, we'd bring it to the body guy, and he'd straighten the frame, get the dents out of the side, maybe replace the bumper that got ripped off because some giant chunk of metal was flying down the highway like what happened to me. Um, and then you bring it to the mechanic guy who fixes what's going on with your engine or uh, you know the joints or something like that. And then you, you bring it to, they, they have some of these guys in town, uh, you know, they, they focus on the electronic side of a car, finding what's going on with the wires and the electrical systems. Okay. That's three different things. And you lose your car each time you get it done. But amazingly, what God does is that he deals with all of this in Jesus, one provider, but he also does this while you're driving the car. What I'm saying is, this takes place during real life. It doesn't take place while you're put on a shelf and you go into the, the, the cave, a cave in the desert or something and you spend three years meditating and you come back and now you're all suddenly really good. It takes place while you live in community, while you live with yourself, and of course, most importantly, while you're living in relationship to Jesus Christ who gives you all the grace. So the third answer to our question is, make disciples so they learn how to please God by grace. We make disciples so they learn how to live, to please God by grace. I think the next three go quicker. You're hoping the next three go quicker, I can tell. Waiting for our blessed hope. This is the, the, the third of the participles that, I've, of, that I mentioned. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. In other words, what Paul is saying is he brings up that word again, epiphany or advent, appearing. We live between two epiphanies. We live between two appearances of Jesus. We live between the two advents of Jesus Christ. But not just that, Jesus is the grace of God, 
doesn't just bring it. He is it, and Jesus is the glory of God. As we think about this text. Paul Tripp again. See, I'm way behind in my Paul Tripp reading, so you're getting all this stuff from June. Uh, Paul Tripp reminds us that we are glory thieves, that we seek glory for ourselves in all the wrong ways. And so that's part of why Jesus revealed his glory uh, to three of his disciples upon the Mount of Transfiguration to set them right about what glory they ought to be receiving or pursuing. But note, in this text, what's the first advent about? Grace. What's the second advent about? Glory. Jesus must deliver us by his grace before he shows us his glory. We need the grace before we can see the glory. It's reflected a little bit there in Exodus 19, which Rick also read. They didn't see the glory of God. God came in a cloud, obscuring his glory. Because oh, while they had been redeemed from Egypt, they had not yet been transformed by his grace, such as we would understand it. And God continued to hide his glory, lest he kill them. Jesus delivers us by his grace so that he can show us his glory so that we can live. One of the things I've I've exposed the boys to now that they're a little bit older is uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark series of movies. And remember the, the, the Indiana Jones series of movies. But the first one, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the climactic scene, what happens? They open the Ark of the Covenant. And Indiana Jones says to Marion, close your eyes. Whatever you do, don't look. Of course, he's you know, bound up, so he can't do anything with the arms. The glory of God was destructive because they were not in a state of grace. And so all the Nazis died because they tried to behold the glory of God and their sinful condition. So we see that we live in the present, between the first coming, which is grace, and, between, and, and before the second coming, which is glory. And, and there's something about this. The, the grace pushes us farther on, but the glory also pulls us. And so uh, we ought to be feeling that experience of being pushed toward glory and being pulled towards glory if we're Christians. Both pushed and pulled in the same direction, not opposite directions. And so the fourth reason that we make disciples is because we're waiting for Jesus to come in glory, and that's what he's called us to do, in other words, while we wait. We make disciples because we're waiting for Jesus to come in glory. Paul continues. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all 
lawlessness. This is how we received grace. Paul has returned to this theme of grace. Paul is clarifying the grace, pointing out through this word redemption or this word redeem. That's the purchase of a slave, most commonly. And so it points to the fact that we were slaves, that we were slaves to sin, we were slaves to Satan. And Jesus, by his death on the cross, has purchased our freedom by his death. We don't know how to live as free people. There's this one story after the Civil War ended and the slaves had been freed. And I think this is a true story, not an apocryphal one. Uh, but one former slave had been given the inheritance of uh, his former master's plantation. He was rich. But he had no concept of being rich. It, it, you know, as a slave, he, he, he just did what he was told. He didn't understand planning things out. He didn't understand managing money. There, there were so many things he, he didn't understand. And now he's free. He has all these resources, but he doesn't know what to do with them. And so he has a meeting with the banker. And the banker tells him, you have $100,000. And he goes, sir, can I buy seed for my field? Is that enough money? He had no concept. When we're redeemed, we have no concept of how it, what it looks like and what it means to live before God. And we need to learn. That's kind of the, again, the, the kind of the what of discipleship. But, but the why is we've been redeemed. We've been set free. And we've been set free also from lawlessness, which is similar to godlessness. It's living as if no laws apply to us. It's called antinomianism. But Paul is here kind of pressing in the weight of sin so that we understand how amazing the work of Jesus is for us. And so... We make disciples because Jesus has redeemed us from this lawlessness. That's our fifth reason. There's one more. To purify for himself a people of his own possession, zealous for good works. Okay, Remember, salvation is by grace, through faith, Paul belabors that point in Ephesians chapter 2. It is grace and salvation that leads to works. Because we remember Ephesians 2, 9, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, not by good works, for good works. 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so good works are not the root of our salvation, but the fruit of our salvation, as uh, has been said commonly. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, which you have a quote there from there in your notes, um, reflects that. It's a manifestation of the salvation we already have. It is not the, it's an evidence of the salvation we already have. It is not the basis for the salvation that we already have, but it is essential. They are essential. That's part of how we know if we are in fact saved. Are there good works? Because there's, there should be a desire for good works in the life of someone who is regenerate has faith in Jesus Christ and has experienced and received the grace of God for salvation. What Paul says here reflects Exodus 19, that idea of the the people of his own possession, a, a precious people. We are, in fact, treasured by God who wants what is best for us, wants, wants what is best for those that he purified. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, we see that the Scriptures are given to us for all of these same reasons, including so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every God work, uh, good work. That gets back to the, to the how of discipleship. But I want you to see right just for this moment that there's a consistency between the why and the how that takes place. And so, discipleship is about learning how to do good works as a function of living right with God. So we make disciples because we need to know how to do good works. So, as we consider the question of why make disciples, we see Paul providing a rich tapestry of reasons in this one sentence. Let's go back to the beginning of this before we started laying out reasons. If this conviction begins to shape our practice, we should see two main results. People joining us to be discipled and those disciples increasingly participating in the life of the church through service cultivating a culture of discipleship means a grace-driven community of people who are growing in their faith, who actually serve one another because they believe Jesus rescued us. And so if we were to take these six threads and kind of weave them together, we would probably get the conclusion that the book offers for this We make disciples because God's goal is to glorify His beloved Son in the midst of the people He has rescued and transformed. I hope that excites you because it excites me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Paul's letter to Titus. 
I, I thank you for what he unfolds there and help us to listen, help us to heed, uh, help us to shape how we think about discipleship so that our practice of discipleship is one that is consumed by grace, uh, that, is, that really focuses on how to help people live because they've been purified and redeemed by Jesus. That doesn't happen accidentally, Father. It, it only happens when we, we set our minds to accomplish that conviction, to practice that conviction. And so um, may that not just be something we heard in a sermon, but may you begin to filter this down into our hearts so that it actually does shape what we do. It's not something we can do on our own power, but we recognize our weakness, our frailty, and our dependence upon the Holy Spirit to accomplish this in our midst, and we pray that you would. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.